Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Last week marked the 60th anniversary of one of Canada's greatest sporting moments. On July 15, 1960, Harry Jerome crossed the 100-meter finish line at the Canadian Olympic Trials in Saskatoon in 10 seconds flat. In doing so, he tied the world record and qualified for the Rome Olympics. Jerome would go on to set six more world records, compete in three Olympic Games, and win multiple international medals for Canada. And yet, very few outside of the track and field community know much, if anything, about him. In this episode, we speak with author Norma Charles about the life and legacy of Harry Jerome and about why we should celebrate him far more than we do. Harry Jerome was born in 1940 in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, but spent his early years living in St. Boniface, Manitoba. His family moved to North Vancouver when Jerome was a preteen, and he spent most of his life in British Columbia. He was an athletic kid who excelled at many sports, but the track was where he shone brightest. As a teenager, he broke Percy Williams' 31-year-old Canadian record and was accepted to the University of Oregon's track program under famed coach Bill Bowerman. Jerome overcame many difficult obstacles throughout his life and career, but succeeded over and over again in the face of adversity. Sadly, Harry died suddenly in his early 40s, but has left behind a legacy that we could all benefit from learning more about. Norma Charles is an award-winning author who has written over 20 books. In 2017, she published a young adult novel entitled Runner, The Life of Harry Jerome, World's Fastest Man. This book was written in the hopes of sharing Jerome's story and legacy with readers across the country, particularly young people who might look to him as a role model. An avid fan of Harry Jerome herself, Norma interviewed family members and friends of the late track star for her book. I connected with Norma at her home in BC. It's lovely to have you on the program, Norma. Thank you for joining us today for this special episode detailing the life and legacy of Mr. Harry Jerome. We're thrilled to have you with us. Right. And hello to you too, Kate. Very pleased to be here. You've written a young adult novel called Runner, Harry Jerome, World's Fastest Man. And I was saying to you before this episode started that I have yet to read it, but it's next on my my reading list for the summer. And uh, I'm sure it will be a great read for our listeners of all ages as well. Um, maybe we could go back a little bit and ask you what your personal connection is to Harry Jerome and what got you interested in his story, compelling you to write a novel about him. Well, I first was aware of Harry Jerome when I was attending UBC. At the time, I was um, engaged to uh, a Trinidadian whose name is Carlos Charles, and he was a sprinter. So uh, because he was a sprinter, I went to all the track meets as well. And that's when I first saw Harry running. I'm, my memory may be faulty, but it seems to me that at the very beginning, Carlos was beating Harry, but that didn't last very long. Um, Harry was a very determined runner. He was there not for the jokes, not for the socializing. He was there 
um, because he wanted to win. And uh, very soon he was winning all the races uh, in the 100 and the 200. At that time, it was yards. And then um, we heard that he qualified for the Olympics in Saskatchewan in 1960, running in Saskatoon. He actually uh, ran the 100 in 10 seconds, which was the world record at that time. And we were so astonished and so very, very happy for him. Then we went on to have four children, and my children were all very interested in track as well. So we followed uh, Harry's career, and I was really surprised that there had never been a book written about him for children, because it seems to me that his life was such a... Uh, an inspiration for children, and not only children, but but for adults as well. Well, and it's great that you've taken that upon yourself to write this novel. And it, I think this is a, a theme that we've seen. And it's great that there's been so much increased media coverage lately. But it really does seem that there's not uh, nearly enough or as much information and and sort of uh, legacy following of Harry Jerome as perhaps there should or could be. So you say that you got interested and and um, started following his career partly because of your husband. But I understand that you had actually some parallels with Harry Jerome's family history starting at a younger age. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes, he grew up in St. Boniface for the first uh, nine or 10 years of his life. And at the very same time that I was growing up in another suburb of Winnipeg, which was Fort Gary, uh, we both suffered through the uh, floods of the Red River. And at one point, his father uh, said, look, we're not going to hang around here anymore. We are moving to the West Coast. And that's exactly what my father said, too, at the same time. So we both moved with our families to the West Coast. He was born the same year as me, 1940. And uh, I wish I had known him then. That would have been wonderful. So he moves to the, to the West Coast and his family moved to North Vancouver. I understand that Harry Jerome and his family faced quite a bit of racial persecution after they made that move. How much can you tell us about the experiences that he might have had with racism in North Vancouver? Well, when they first moved to North Vancouver, um, they found quite a lovely house and they were really happy there that very first day, uh, going around admiring the house after, uh, you know, leaving their flooded out house in St. Boniface. It was really lovely. And then there was a knock on the door and it was a woman with a petition that asked them to move because they didn't want a black family living in that neighborhood. The the family was totally uh, taken aback and astonished and At first, you know, they wanted to stay there and just, you know, it was their right to live wherever they wanted. But in the end, um, the real estate man found them another place, and so they had to move. Unfortunately, that house 
burnt down. And in the middle of the night, the father was gone. He was a porter on the train. And so um, he was away. The house burnt down and the family was left there on the street. No other neighbor invited them to come in or anything like that. So the police had to take them to, um, I think it was the community center or the Y to spend a few nights before they could find another home. So they they encountered uh, racial prejudice really a lot. When um, Harry and his two younger sisters started school on that very first day, they were met with uh, taunts and uh, Valerie Harry's sister says that the kids threw rocks at them and chased them away. And so they didn't even go to school for the first little while until the father came home from um, traveling on the trains. And he marched them right back to school and insisted that they they attend there. But um, that time was a very, very difficult time for the whole family. Quite a story, and and it seems as though throughout his career, Harry faced a lot of criticism, and and I'm sure some of it, you know, overtly race related, and some perhaps more sort of subversive. But there was quite a bit of criticism of him as an athlete, and it sounds like it was partly because of the way that he presented himself at competitions, but also um, despite all of his amazing accomplishments. He was sort of labeled as a quitter at, at various points in his career. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the, the media scrutiny that he would have received throughout his career? Right. Harry learned um, uh, part of his training was when you run, you have to get your whole mind set on what you're doing and you go over the race in your mind. I know that because my own children had the same coach for a little while and they told me about you know the whole pre-game time um so harry was very very serious about running and the whole time uh, um before he actually started off on his race um he would just be like in the zone and at that time uh reporters I don't know, they, they were not very uh, very happy about going going to him and trying to interview him, and he would just turn his back on them or just be very noncommittal. So he was not very popular with the reporters to begin with. And then when he went to Rome uh, at the Olympics in 1960, Uh, It was very unfortunate, but he missed the ride going to the stadium. It was a very, very hot day. Uh, So he actually had to jog from uh, the residence where he was staying all the way to the stadium. He arrived absolutely soaked and um, exhausted, and they were calling his race. This was for the semifinals of the 100. So he went up to the starting point. And uh, there, the all the reporters were saying, "Are you? Or how are you feeling? You know, are you going to win this one?" Uh, because everyone expected that he would just walk away with a first 
because of his earlier win in uh, Saskatchewan. Anyway, uh, he was really, really tense, and he ended up uh, pulling a muscle halfway through, and so he just limped to the end. And at the time, the, uh, the reporter said, oh, he's just a quitter. You know, he didn't even try. And that was like, the, it set the tone for how reporters would treat him after that. Now, of course, he had quite a story of redemption. That was the, his first birth at the Olympics was in 1960 in Rome, as you mentioned. And then four years later, he comes back to the Games in Tokyo and ends up on the podium winning that bronze in the 100 meter and then comes back a few days later for fourth in the 200. And he goes on to make yet another Olympic Games, which at the time is really outstanding. I mean, for any athlete to make three consecutive Olympic teams is pretty amazing. But it sounds like... Um, that the public really had to sort of change their tone about who he was as an athlete and a person. Um, what do you think it was that instilled this sort of stick to itness that he must have exemplified to be able to not only overcome that disappointment and that injury in Rome, but all of this negative media attention? Well, his philosophy was always do your best. And that, I think, went right back to when he was a, a Cub Scout in St. Boniface. Uh, his sister Valerie said that he loved being in that, um, in that group. And the motto there was always do your best. And Harry just took that to heart. And um, he was one of those kind of people that, you know, when you do something, do it your very, very best. And so that's what he did. Also, I think it was even deeper than that. I think that he found that when uh, he was doing well as an athlete, people regarded him with much more respect. Now, this is a young fellow who grew up, uh, you know, for the first 20 years of his life, or the time when he was in St. Boniface, I think that he got on very well. But the 10 years of his life from age 10 to 1920, um, I think that he felt that people were really mean to him. They, they disrespected him. They thought he was a lesser person. But once he started winning as an athlete, then people started to say, well, you know, this, uh, this fellow has something here. So I think that uh, deep down really pushed him. Now you watched him race in person and I'm sure on, uh, on television as well quite a bit. And a lot of people who saw him race in person described this really fluid, effortless style. And yet you're also um, talking about a man who exemplified tremendous grit um, and tenacity. And I'm wondering what it was like to watch him race and what, how those sort of uh, those elements of his personality combined uh, in, in, in person when he was performing. Oh, he, he was an absolute marvelous athlete. Um, when he was running the hundred it, uh, honestly, it, it was beauty impersonated. It really was. He just flowed through the whole race. No bouncing, no uh, jerkiness. The movements were very fluid and uh, just marvelous. And at the end of the race, the amazing thing is he wasn't even breathless. 
you know, I, I was always astounded at the, uh, about that. Even as a very young athlete, I first saw him run when he was probably 18, I guess. There was this push, but it was so internal that it just pushed him along the track. Um, really quite quite a, an amazing thing to see. Mm. Wow, I, I wish I could have seen that myself. It sounds absolutely beautiful. And of course, as, as a track athlete myself, I've seen many examples. Um, I've, I've seen a ton of people race, but there is something so special when you get that one athlete that just, like you said, is running faster than everyone, but just makes it look effortless. It, it is poetry in motion. It's pretty neat. It's poetry in motion, exactly. Yes. Well, he had a very, very good coach in John Minicello. Um, he, he coached my own kids too, so I actually saw him in, um, you know, doing the coaching. And oh my, he was really excellent. And he pushed this uh, thing of, you know, keep your elbows in, uh, you know, get the knees up, and don't go further up. Uh, higher than than you have to go f- with each step, you know. Right, that concept of all of your momentum being forward instead of up. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Is there a race or a performance that really stands out for you? That is sort of the most memorable uh, recollection you have of watching Harry race. The one that really stands out for me was in 1966. He was at the British Commonwealth Games in uh, Jamaica. Uh, He was running the 100 yards there. And this was after he had had not only his initial uh, muscle pull, but in Australia, he had a very, very serious uh, injury to where his thigh muscle pulled uh, away from his knee. There was a natural rip there. And some doctor said, this fellow will never walk again, much less run. But he, you know, went swimming. He he really pushed himself and pushed himself. So in Jamaica, he was all set to go again. And people thought, oh, you know, he's going to quit again. And they were, the, the press was really down on him. But he won the gold at, in, uh, in Jamaica. And I think for me, that was the happiest I think that he ever was, and and we were too, because you know to see him win a gold medal at um, such a huge event, uh, we were very very proud. We were proud to know him, and proud to know that he was doing that for Canada. Now, it, I understand that Harry comes or came from quite an athletic family. In fact, there were multiple Olympians in his family. From my research, I saw that his grandfather competed, I believe, in the 1912 Olympics, and that his sister Valerie accompanied him to those Rome games and competed in the 100 meter and the 4 by one there as well. In your research and your communication with his family for your novel and for your interest as well, what did you learn about his family in terms of their athletic backgrounds? I think those were really the only two um, major athletes in their family. Uh, You know, his grandfather, um, John Army Howard, uh, this was his mother's father. As you say, he did compete uh, in 1912, there again, he had um, 
you know, because of racial discrimination, he wasn't allowed to eat with the other athletes. He, his coach was really apparently very hard on him, um, is what uh, Valerie says. So he didn't really do as well as, as everyone expected him to do. Um, Valerie was a, was a wonderful athlete. She still is, actually. She, I see her now and then here in Vancouver. I don't think her, his parents were particularly athletic. At least this, this is what uh, Valerie says. For Valerie and Harry, uh, it was track that took them away from their family and um, allowed them to really uh, do well, you know, themselves. Well, and there must have been such a passion there, not just in terms of the competition, but once Harry retired, he actually went on to do quite a bit of work to help develop sport within BC and across Canada. Can you tell us more about that role in his, uh, his post-retirement career and involvement in sport? In 1969, he was asked by, uh, by the Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau, to work on uh, establishing a fitness program for youth and amateur sports all across Canada. So uh, he worked on that with a group of other people. And then um, he was asked by the, the uh, Premier of BC if he would work on a, another, a similar program in BC. It was called the Premier Sports Award Program. And it was to help PE teachers to uh, teach children basic sports skills and, and to encourage uh, their participation. Because his uh, feeling was that if you participate in sports as a kid, that will make you a much healthier adult. Well, and that's amazing. I also understand he was um, given the Order of Canada in 1971 and was given British Columbia's Athlete of the Century. And these accolades seem very, you know, rightfully given considering how much he did both on and off of the track. But, you know, there, so there are a number of um, legacy projects around Harry Jerome. And the ones that I think are probably most familiar for at least those in the track world are the Harry Jerome Track Classic, which takes place in Swangard Stadium in, in Burnaby each year. And I've competed there. It's a fantastic track meet. Um, and there's quite a bit of information provided about Harry at that meet. And then, of course, there's that stunningly beautiful, iconic statue on the seawall in Stanley Park of Harry just kind of dipping, it looks like, at the line sort of with his chest forward and there's all kinds of motion in that beautiful statue. But despite those uh, sort of legacy projects and despite all that he did, it seems as though he's not nearly as much of a household name as maybe he could or should be. Do you, wh why do you think that is? I mean, we're talking about the 60th anniversary of his first world record and there's been more of a spotlight shone on him lately. But why do you think there isn't more sort of general knowledge about this Canadian sporting icon? You know, I really don't know. I, I was totally astonished. I was in a, a very large art auditorium with about 400 kids uh, just shortly before this book came out. I was talking about another one of my books with the children. And um, one of the questions that the kids asked me was, um, what's your next book about? And I said, well, it's about Harry Jerome. Then I said, all right, you guys, who was Harry Jerome? Do you know in those 400 children, not one of them knew who he was. 
I was absolutely astonished. Uh, the, one of the librarians, you know, put up her hand. I said, I said, I'll give you a free book, you know, if you can tell me who Harry Jerome was. And she was able to tell the, um, the children who he was. So even here on the West Coast, his name is not known. It's celebrated in that there is um, a sports complex named after him and that beautiful statue that you mentioned. But still his, his life and his accomplishments are not known. So I think it's up to us as writers and broadcasters to, uh, you know, let the world know that there was this absolutely fantastic uh, athlete. Uh, the other thing, too, is that I think every kid needs to have someone in their life that they can look up to and that they can imagine themselves being. So with this um, Black Lives Matter, I think it's even more important right now that kids know that there was somebody out there in in the very, uh, not very long ago, who put his mind to something and accomplished something truly great just by trying his best. And so that sort of, I guess that partially answers my next question, but I'm curious as to what compelled you. You obviously have so much knowledge about him, and and I understand that you interviewed his sister Valerie extensively and other members of his family. Is that correct as well? I interviewed Valerie, and I interviewed his very best friend, Paul Wynn, who uh, was a family friend for for a long time, uh, and also his coach, and so what compelled you to write a young adult novel as opposed to a biography? Because you obviously have a, a great amount of knowledge and obvious passion for this topic and for this man's uh, legacy. What compelled you to write the, the novel? You know, I tried writing it as a, a flat nonfiction and I couldn't feel the life in it. I guess it's because I'm a novelist. I've written 20 novels for kids and uh, that's my my background And for me, that's where you get the real truth. You know, you really get inside a a person and inside their their soul, really, is in fiction. I think fiction, in the end, is truer than fact. So we're here uh, just over 60 years now from the anniversary of Harry Jerome's first uh, world record. And of course, uh, there was, you know, it, it, this is always tragic, but um, this great sporting hero really died before his time at only the age of 42, I believe, from a brain aneurysm. So um, we, we can't ask him this. But what do you think Harry Jerome's legacy is today? If you can, if you can imagine even even the Harry Jerome from your novel, what do you think he would be wanting us to know today? I think uh, going back to that scout motto, you know, always do your best. Um, I think, you know, if kids or, you know, anybody, adults, whatever, whatever you take upon yourself, do it to your very, very best. Thank you to Norma Charles for sharing her insights with us this week. You can find her novel, Runner, Harry Jerome, Fastest Man on Earth, in bookstores, online, or at libraries across the country. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at ShakeOutPodcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for tuning in and we'll chat again soon. Thank you.